missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hi. And Jason. Hello. We also have a special guest directly from the Dartmouth College Department of Anthropology. Give it up for Kate Miller. <laughs> Hi. Oh, like, <laughs> applause in the background. Can we get some air yeah. horns, too? <laughs> oh, I, I think I can do, like, a slow build up to, like, a frenzy. Yeah, Yeah, that yeah. would be appreciated. Yes. Is that good? Mm-hmm. I'll hold my confidence. That'd be great, yeah. <laughs> so, Steffi, it's good to have you back. You were sorely missed in the last episode. Thank you for talking about me. And my, you know. and my stuff. You can come see I, the Tokamak. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't explicitly invite you. Now the invitation, James, has been extended formally. That's true. Yeah. Right here. That's a good thing I left my car running, so I can just jump in at the end of this recording. It should be pointed out she was <laughs> talking to you. And she said you could come to the Tokamak. You all. Okay, you all, you all. <laughs> that includes you, Kate. Yep, come see it. All right, score. <laughs> And Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you. Yeah, me too. Excited to be here. Tonight, we're talking about brown noise analysis, a black hole sun, and in the second half, the fire is rising. We got a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. On this show, we've talked a lot about AI, including a whole episode about it featuring Rufus Cochran from two weeks ago. You should go listen to it if you haven't yet. From analyzing oceans of data to fine-tuning the structure of our soon-to-be overlords, the Xenobots, it seems the uses for machine learning are limitless. However, even in the infinite possibilities, I didn't see this story coming. And I also have to let everyone in the world know that I did not put this story on the dock. That goes out to our friend and colleague, Jason Oregon. How you doing? Thanks, Jason. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Let's get to it. A team led by Maya Gatlin from the Georgia Institute of Technology used 350 recordings collected from the internet to train an AI to determine whether or not that sound was, and I honestly can't believe it's come to this, diarrhea. And guess what? It worked. The AI was able to determine with 96% accuracy whether the producer of said sound was experiencing a diarrheal event, which is something I just learned, normal excretion, or just plain old flatulence. And after filtering out the background noise and, I'm assuming, deleting their search history, that accuracy rating went up to 98%. Now, I know I'm having a bit of fun with this, but there are some health implications in how this could be used to track outbreaks of diseases like cholera. You just need to install microphones in public restrooms and control this for the style of the toilet. So maybe we need to do a little bit more fine-tuning before we get this particular program deployed. Did you say fine-tuning? Maybe I did. The AI would know. (laughs) And uh, I I feel like maybe this is a little bit too inside baseball, but the irony is not lost on me that as soon as this document or as soon as this article went up on the Discord, my daughter came down with a bout of norovirus. Oh, no. So uh, fun times in the Reed household. (laughs) I bet you didn't need any sort of AI to tell you what was going on, though. No. And so that when I first read the headline, too, I got to be honest, I was like, 
who is the AI telling? Like, I don't want to get too blue, but every time I've been in this situation, I knew about it. So <laughs> I was point. like, is the AI telling me? <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that in the picture of the article, and I have a picture of the machine itself, and it's just a light above the word diarrhea and then a light above the word other. So I assume if you are the user, can you just, like, when you're done, look and see what light flashes? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, see how you did, I guess? Yeah. Or maybe that you're helping train the AI by, like, checking for them, being like, yep, you, you yeah. nailed it. Good job. Oh, well maybe done. actually, it looks like it. So I'm looking at this picture now, right? And there are two lights that can light up. One that says diarrhea and one that says other. Yeah, that's what Kate <laughs> right. just said, yeah. Right? No, yeah. right. And then two push buttons, it looks like. Um, oh, like yeah. a green one and a red one, right? And so I think you're onto something. <laughs> I th- they didn't explain this, but I think you're onto this. Like, you tell them, are you correct? That's true. Maybe you can correct it. But if you're self-conscious and you give it bad data because you're like, ah, I'm going to say it wasn't just so I feel better about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I mean, this whole thing is an incredible invasion in the privacy. Yeah. And also, like, what kind of microphones are they using? Is mm-hmm. this like, do we need to control for, for the microphone style? Uh, do we need to worry about getting a microphone that's too expensive? Because, like, you know, these Sure microphones are pretty mm-hmm. pretty good, but they're really expensive. And if we're trying to get this into, like, uh, the developing world, we got to mm-hmm. get something that's affordable for everybody. There's just there's, there's a lot of things to think about here, and I'm just glad we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a start, right? I yeah. think <laughs> the intent is there. The goal is there. I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm on board with that. <laughs> So I guess I don't, here's what I don't understand. If we're looking for things like cholera, why can't we just look for it in the weight sanitation mm-hmm. system, right? That was my question as, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're doing that for COVID. Exactly. You know, we're doing it for all sorts of other things too. I mean, this is, we're using it for COVID, not because it was designed for COVID. It was designed for things like cholera, right? What is the improvement here? Why aren't we continuing down the road of being able to actually identify the agent in the wastewater, right? To me, that seems much more precise. Because we have to use AI in everything. I was also going to say that it seems like it's just another opportunity to see what can AI do. This seems like not a good thing for AI to be doing, to to be quite frank. We have to talk about the implications that Jason is saying here. What you're saying is that an engineer, especially like a computer engineer, saw a problem that was easily solved by other means and had to use AI and invasive microphone technology to solve this already solved problem. I can't believe that you're saying that. (laughs) You know what? I can... Imagine a scenario where a computer scientist is trying to figure out whether or not it's safe to use the restroom after a coworker went in there. They're like, oh, we got to find a way to solve this problem where I don't actually have to go in there. Oh, that could be it. Right? And now look where we are. Maybe this is why you fund science for science sake. What YouTube video? I'm sure you can search like, and you can let us know. Yeah, I'm sure it's on there. We're way too comfortable with being mm-hmm. on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about things that I get sent in Instagram. So I can only imagine wow. what's on YouTube from mm-hmm. random All right. friends. Mm-hmm. So. That's fair. That's mm-hmm. fair. So maybe this is a good opportunity, James, to move from a brown hole to a black hole story. <laughs> I think you're right. 8.5 billion years ago, a star got a bit too close to a supermassive black hole. And as it got closer, pieces of the star began to be pulled away in a process which is now my favorite science word ever, spaghettification. 
And just like Sam Neill in Event Horizon, some of that Stargoss got pulled into the black hole, but instead of being transported to hell, or however that movie ended, it released a bunch of energy in the form of light. So flash forward to February of 2022, when researchers observed this event, 8.5 billion years in the making, which is just slightly quicker than the Avatar production schedule, and we get to learn all sorts of cool stuff about light, tidal disruption events, black holes, and a host of other things that Steffi will probably be better able to explain than me. Let's talk about this black hole sun. I mean, it's pretty astonishing. Supermassive black holes shredding stars and then injecting light that we can detect from so far away, from so long ago. It doesn't get any more metal than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so true. What is amazing to me is that we can catch these very rare phenomenon that happen out in our universe, and we can actually be there detecting it at the time the light is arriving at these detectors. So this is gl- these large gamma ray bursts are pretty rare, especially for this instance. It's just an amazing amount of energy that it's shredding and ejecting out. So the t- these long duration gamma bursts, they only last for like 20 to 40 seconds. That's fairly short. And the fact that we could see mm-hmm. that, that's amazing. And supermassive black holes, we're talking about like a regular black hole weighs about 50 times the mass of our sun. Supermassive black holes, they're hundreds of thousands or millions to billions times the mass of our sun. Yeah, that does not. <laughs> I can't even internalize that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So shredding that much energy and shooting it out in gamma rays. The other thing is this was pointing right at us. We could actually see the bright light of it because it had this Doppler boosting effect, which means if you're aligned in the direction these gamma ray bursts are shooting out, it actually makes it brighter so we can detect it. So I just find all of this fascinating. And then spigotification. I mean, I just love words, too. Yeah. <laughs> so does it have to be like a semolina-based star for this to happen? I'm, I'm not Probably. Entirely, or is it just better <laughs> no. that way? Is the light brighter if it's a semolina-based star? It's a little chewier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that just means you get some vertical stretching and horizontal compression of any ob- of objects that go into these long, thin shapes. And this happens when you're near these very strong gravitational fields, especially like the supermassive black hole that I mentioned. So if this is a supermassive black hole that's shredding a star, right? Yeah. Um, this must have been a sizable star for this much energy or this for the you know burst to last as long as it did. Am I right? Am I right in understanding that? Or... Or could this have been like a little, you know, I mean, no stars, little podunk star, but like. Yeah, you know. I don't know how big the the star has to be for it to, to, to shoot out this much energy. Right. I'm thinking yeah. along the lines of, you know, those little whippersnapper things that, the, the that people put out. You know what I'm talking about? That people put out on Halloween, like to line their walkway. Sure. So people walking, oh. like they step on them and they pop. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. yeah. I don't know what they're called. I they, We call them whippersnappers when I was growing up. I'm not sure if there's a, a better <laughs> name for it. There probably is. Nevertheless, you know, there are some that are very small and there are some that are much bigger, right? And if you step on the bigger ones, they make a louder bang. And I'm wondering, is it similar to that, right? Would the size of the star affect how much of that energy, how much of those gamma rays are emitted, right? Right. And then does that affect the duration of that burst or the intensity of that burst? As as far as I understood it, these gamma, the long gamma ray bursts are really when you're happening near this supermassive black hole because you have so much energy from the supermassive black, so much gravitational force from that. 
The other thing that was cool about this one is this was the first Doppler-boosted tidal disruption event that was discovered using optical light. So normally we're looking at different wavelengths, like in the gamma range of frequencies, but this was using optical light too. The thing that always blows my mind with all of these astronomical stories that we talk about is like this happened 8.5 billion years ago, right? Because of how light years work. Yeah, every time you're looking up into the sky, you're looking into the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, wild. Had it happened 8.6 billion years ago, like maybe we wouldn't have been able to see it with optical light yet or detect it at all. That's a drop in the bucket Mm -hmm. of time. Right. That's nuts. Yeah. Speaking of deep time, why don't we sail away from this black hole before we get sucked into it? And uh, we'll be back in just a moment with more Psycom. But first, a message from another podcast that I think you'll enjoy. Hi, friends. Cameron here. I host a bi-weekly podcast called Nature is Gay that explores themes of sex and sexuality and gender expression across the natural world. We talk about pseudocopulation and sociosexual behaviors, asexual reproduction, in plants and animals and fungi and every little thing in between. It's a great time. I'm a little biased, but I think you should check it out. That's Nature is Gay, available wherever you get podcasts. It's no secret that I love the story of the Rising Star Cave, Homo Naledi, and the underground astronauts that go through a 10-inch wide passage to reach the chamber. Blows my mind. We also love Lee Berger, who's most prominently associated with that find, who you can listen to on a past episode. And it turns out the Rising Star Cave system is the gift that keeps on giving because Professor Berger recently told a group at the Carnegie Institution, I guess he was waiting for a bigger discovery to come back on our show, that he and Kenaloe Molopena, also from the University of Wits, found evidence of controlled fire use by Homo naledi. This is the first for a species who, because of the smaller brain, we kind of assumed they couldn't use fire. What does this mean for our understanding of hominid behavior and fire use and all the fun things that fire can do for us? Steffi, you use fire all the time in some form, right? I don't think the university likes it when we do that. (gasps) She harnesses fire. No, I harness, like, (laughs) better than fire. It's fusion. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's fair. That's fair. Again, I, I still haven't really been visiting the reactor but anyway come see the tokamak (laughs) (laughs) i have a feeling even visiting the tokamak is not going to improve our understanding james so anyway (laughs) fire the rising star cave let's talk about it and also like if you don't know about the rising star cave of homo naledi like really do go back and listen to that lee Berger episode we talk about it quite a bit i think it's a really exciting find I don't know. I'd love to hear other people's opinion as well, but um, it didn't necessarily surprise me. I understand that Homo naledi has a smaller cranial capacity, but I, I don't know. I guess like, it wasn't that surprising to me that Homo naledi would be using fire. I guess I'll start there. 
I don't, I'm not an anatomist. I don't know any of these mm-hmm. things. So why didn't it surprise you? And what, what, what did they find that was evidence that there was fire there? Yeah, totally. So I believe, so I don't think there's a paper out yet. I think that's to come. And it was more of a general announcement. Um, and I think there were some pictures associated as well. But I believe what they found was some soot or ash and then some burned bone and I think some burned wood. So I believe there's a claim that there were hearths and that they were cooking and potentially not just that this fire was brought into the cave, but that they were actively making fire. Disclaimer, I have done one project with fire, but I actually study functional anatomy, so I'm doing my best to (laughs) harken back to my, my knowledge of fire. So I think it's pretty well agreed that habitual fire or consistently using fire in the past happened maybe about 400,000 years ago. And so that's when we start to consistently see fire in the archaeological record. I think the very first evidence of fire is more confidently set around one million years ago. But it's really fire, I think, has been associated with the advent of the genus Homo, and particularly with Homo erectus. So one million years ago, we see evidence of it, and then you start to see habitual fire 400,000 years ago. Homo naledi is, I think, 350 to 250,000 years old. So I think that's why, particularly the timing, doesn't surprise me to see fire at that time. I think what was surprising is that Homo naledi being kind of the weird hominin that it is, it has a smaller brain size than you would expect for that time period and for Homo. So I think that's what makes it kind of exciting and and strange that it's associated with fire, Um, the small-brained hominin. How did it, you know, we didn't think it had that capacity, and now it looks like it did have the capacity to make fire. But I don't know. I guess I don't like to underestimate hominins and what they can do and, and, you know, their small brain capacity associated with, you know, a lack of behavior. So I, yeah, I guess I wasn't too, too surprised to see fire with Homo naledi. I kind of agree because... Homo naledi was existing alongside other hominids at this time in this area that were using fire, presumably. Mm -hmm. Maybe it didn't have the brain capacity to, like, innovate the creation of fire and its use. But I I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it takes that much to kind of see fire being used and mimic to me. But I could be way off. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think... You know, you can learn or or do by by seeing other individuals do that. And so I also don't think it's too far-fetched that if they're living on the landscape with other hominins who were already using fire, that maybe they saw that and learned to do that themselves or or perhaps learned to make fire by watching others. I don't know. I guess that one might be a little bit, you know, a little bit harder to figure out if that was the case. I don't really Mm. know how you show that. But yeah, I don't think that would be all too surprising that they picked that up from watching others. I also had to like really read this article twice when I saw that Professor Berger uh, went into one of the caves and I was like, wait, I know he got into, into the cave, but it was, it was a, a more generously sized cave that he was able to get into. Sure. Still terrifying though. I don't think I could get myself yeah. into any of those caves. Mm-hmm. Not for me. 10 inch, <laughs> 10 inches. That sounds terrifying to me. So terrifying. (laughs) So can we go back to one of the very first things, Kate, that you said, which is that this was an exciting discovery. I agree that that it's interesting for sure. Why are you excited by it? 
right? I'm asking because this is an area that um, is of interest to you. It's in your research area, right? I mean, it's at least broadly within your research area. Mm-hmm. And it's not in mine anymore. I, you know, I, I was a part of that um, research group and area 20 years ago, but I'm not involved in that anymore. And I, I look at this and I think, well, that's cool. It's very, you know, it's very cool to have evidence of, you know, potentially evidence of controlled use of fire at a site you weren't expecting to find it in a, in a new species. However, you said yourself, it's not unexpected, right? So why should mm-hmm. we be excited by it? I know there's a reason because I can see the smile on your face. Tell me why this is so cool, because for me, it seems a masterful use of a SciComm generating machine to hype this up. And I am quite impressed with that. And that is exciting because it gets the public interested. But from a research side, why is this exciting? There's Mm -hmm. gotta be a reason. Tell me what it is. I might not do a great job with that because I think I'm just generally excited when new information comes out about hominins. And so right, like right. that no, alone I, I get <laughs> gets me excited. I, I think studying fire is really interesting. You know, it's always a debate. When did it begin and who can we associate it with and what were its implications? And so the more species we can associate it with, like that's cool. So, right, not necessarily unexpected that it would be associated with homo naledi, but if we do have this potential direct association, I think that's cool to be able to say it wasn't just homo erectus or it wasn't just, you know, XYZ species or just modern humans. We see it at this location at this time period with this species. And so this is just yet another cool behavior that homo naledi can do. And again, pulling in that brain size, you know, you don't have to have the cranial capacity of homo erectus or modern humans to be able to harness fire. You know, you can have more like a smaller brain size and still do these really advanced behaviors. So I think it's just cool to find more behaviors associated with hominins, especially because behaviors don't necessarily preserve that well. You have like the stone tool record and then fire is really hard to find in the archaeological record that does not preserve Mm -hmm. well. And I think that's why going back farther and farther, once you get to the million year mark, becomes less and less and less evidence. So to have this kind of hopefully, you know, robust evidence for this would be would just be exciting. So just finding new behaviors is always cool. What can fire tell us about sort of social behavior, right? In in a species? What can it tell us about behavior? It's so open-ended. Mm-hmm. What can this tell us knew about how Homo naledi may have lived its life day to day? Yeah, I think one of the big things that they had mentioned in the announcement was that the burned bones would indicate cooking. So it's not just having fire. You know, you could imagine that maybe some early uses of fire would just be for its immediate benefit, so light, heat, etc. But then once you actually go to the next step and start cooking, like that's an interesting next cognitive step um, and benefit in that obviously will have some biological and physiological implications. You know, you have that cooking hypothesis that cooking food means you can get the reduced molars, kind of a more simplified gut, all of these kind of anatomical repercussions of that. So um, I think it's interesting that they could have been cooking. And then I also think in, you know, he had mentioned, Lee had mentioned that it was made intentionally and not just brought into the cave. So I think you could have, you know, a wildfire and then go bring some flammable Mm -hmm. material and kind of start bringing it with you. But that's different than making it yourself. I'd like to talk more about that, but I think we have to wait until there's data to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a struggle when you don't really, it's a little anecdotal at the moment, but it'll be exciting to see data. What would you be looking for to support that, I guess, hypothesis? To me, 
this is was always sort of my the way that I I, had, I struggled with understanding how to approach an a like a historical science versus an ahistorical mm-hmm. science, right? In the biomedical realm, when I I test hypotheses about brittle bone disease, like we do in my lab, it's about how do you falsify the hypothesis? Mm-hmm. What kind of data would you use to falsify it so that you could then move on to something else and find something else, some other hole to poke in this hypothesis mm-hmm. until you get to a, a, a broader understanding, right? A, a bigger truth. Yeah. In a historical science like that, you really can't do that. Instead, you're looking for data that support your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I always had a hard time with that. I could think of all the things that would falsify it, but like that's not what you're looking for because you're looking for the things that are going to support your idea here. So what kinds of data? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's one reason that finding evidence for fire is so contentious because it seems mm-hmm, like it sure. would be easy to come up with reasons that it could be something else, you know, something else mm-hmm. made that, you know, how do you know it wasn't a landscape fire that burned all that material? In this case, I wish I had a good answer. I don't know what kind of evidence you would look for to determine if they actively made the fire like from scratch as opposed mm-hmm. to bringing in some fire and then putting that in a hearth. I don't know what you look for there. I guess it would depend on how they made it, which I also don't know. Right, no, that's fair. But I think some things that would be cool to do, I think excavating the potential hearth would be really interesting. So my experience with fire was at a site called Kubifora in Kenya, and they have these kind of patches of red sediment that we think are hearths, and they're about one and a half million years old. And one team there has started to excavate them and so I think excavating these hearths in the in the cave which I don't I don't know how feasible that is but if you could that could tell you more about its context and you could kind of trace the sediment down and I was told when I was working on this project in Kubifora that if it is a hearth it's probably going to have a different shape like the sediment the burn sediment is going to be kind of a basin shape or a bowl shape because it's burning really hot in the center and then it's cooler around the edges. And so you'd expect that kind of shape. But if you don't have that when you're excavating, then maybe this is something else that that you're looking at. And the cave is also tough because, you know, you always have that potential that this material is washed in somehow. Or is out of, you know, out of superposition, right? Yes, totally. I can't remember what that was called. Superposition? Yeah, Yeah, law of superposition. Okay, so this idea that stuff that you dig out of the ground at a level closer to the ground is going to be younger yeah. than the stuff below that, right? But in a cave, you know, all sorts of animals can s- mix up those uh, sedimentary layers and commingle all the artifacts, yes. right? Yes. So tricky. Yeah, it is tough. Usually, like, in some cases, the geology can look kind of like a layer cake, and it's that law of superposition is great because you have, yeah, the layers on the bottom are going to be older and then they gradually kind of cover and the layers closer to the top will be younger. But right, in a cave, if things are just kind of washing in, you know, left and right, you don't, it gets mixed up and it gets kind of jumbled. So I think one of the big pieces of data that we'll be waiting for from Lee and his team will be the dates of the material that they think is is burned or associated with the fire. So fire is really hard to support, but you also have an issue of are these materials burned or are they just discolored? Mm-hmm. Like chemicals can come in and, and change the color of the material. Mm-hmm. So that's also a problem. I think what you do now or what that team does now is just find as much evidence and data as they can to support that it's fire, um, which can be tough. Right. Hopefully they have that before the <laughs> yeah. announcement was made, right? Right. Ideally, that's what you do. I know. I know. That's what I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> kind of burying the lead here. 
Lee has promised two major announcements before the end of the year coming out of the Rising Star mm-hmm. Cave. This was not one of them. Oh. This is the bonus one here, maybe, maybe for the Patreon crowd. It's almost like he's waiting <laughs> right. for us to do our annual Evolution Roundup in January uh, mm. so that these can get pushed to the top of the list. So we'll, we'll have to stay posted with Lee. And when he does release something, we will talk about it on this podcast for sure. But Kate, I want to, you, you mentioned your project at Kubifora, and I always love this story because it really kind of shows you what research in this area is. Uh, so would you, would you want to talk about the project that you did in Kubifora looking for, for hearths? It was part of a field school, uh, the Kubifora field school, which I recommend. It was amazing. And we each got to do some projects when we were in the field, and mine was to look to see so they had already found these patches so we're on this landscape we're in this particular area in Kubifora and they had previously found these patches and they're kind of more or less circular um, maybe a meter in diameter or so but they are this kind of darkened red sediment and you can see the difference between this red sediment and the surrounding sediment so you'll notice when you come upon one and my project was pretty simple but it was just to walk the landscape and see how many I could find, you know, how many of these potential hearths are actually out there. Because you would expect there to be more than one that the hominins are actively using and creating fire. It's been a couple years now, but I think I found somewhere in the teens, um, and this is just based on my, like, walking around and surveying this area over the course of three days, but between, like, 15 and 20, I think, is what I found Um, which is really exciting. So I just took some GPS points and I mapped them onto this aerial image of the site to see if I could find some patterns. I ended up going the functional anatomy route, so I kind of left that project behind, even though it was really cool. But yeah, it was exciting that it wasn't just kind of one patch. I think that would have been not so helpful for the argument that there was consistent fire use here. But yeah, so we found a a couple patches that might have been one and a half million year old fire hearths. Maybe you were testing that bipedalism hypothesis while you were looking throughout the landscape for yeah. these, these <laughs> Bringing it all, it's all it's because all of bipedalism, there. right? <laughs> yeah, everything is. Yeah. Everything is, yeah. <laughs> and you talked about how Hominoletti's already kind of this weird hominid. Mm-hmm. It has like, it has a smaller brain size, but it also shows off all of this symbolic behavior. So what does mm. the potential use of fire how does that what how does that change the story for Homo naledi? I know for Homo naledi it's so interesting because I think one of the most interesting things about Homo naledi is that it's in this cave. So one is that it's bringing fire into the cave. I don't I kind of struggle where to go from there. So, you know, it probably is using light, but also if you're in a cave and you're using fire and it's filling with smoke, like I just feel like there's so many different variables about using fire in a cave that makes homonality interesting if you know this turns out to be evidence for for fire use and right because there's also a claim that homonality was intentionally burying their dead then maybe there's some symbolic use of fire i don't necessarily know the evidence that would support that like what you would look for and not to say that that didn't happen i just don't know you know what would be preserved to show that but who knows like maybe they've found some fire evidence in, evidence in different contexts and not just with, you know, burned animal bones or wood. But it could certainly be in there if they're yeah. doing some ritual behavior. Maybe they're using fire with it as well. I don't know. 
you know, maybe that's going to be one of the big reveal. It's it's probably either that or a new NFT. Who would only time yeah, to right? <laughs> it's usually between those two things. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, we really appreciated you coming on and talking to us. Why don't you tell Why don't mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, we have you here. You know, we, what what is uh, what is a Kate Miller? <laughs> oh, fun! Well, right now, a Kate Miller is sitting in a basement lab doing some landmarking for some geometric morphometrics all day, every day. So, uh, yeah, so I am in the fifth year of my PhD program here at Dartmouth. I am studying and looking at the uh, origin and evolution of bipedalism by looking at the knee joint. Uh, so I am looking at some Miocene apes and some Pleistocene hominins. Unfortunately, not Homo naledi, but maybe I'll include that now. And I'm trying to use that to understand when and how bipedalism may have evolved. Right now I'm doing something called landmarking, and it's part of a process called geometric morphometrics. And this process is basically comparing three-dimensional shapes. And so I am using all of the bones that make up the knee joint, and I've turned them into 3D shapes on the computer. So I use landmarking as placing these specific points on the bone that are of interest to me and my research. And this program is going to compare those areas of the bone and then compare the entire bone shapes themselves. And so I can kind of see the differences between different species that I have put in there. So I put in a bunch of bones of chimpanzees, gorillas, modern humans, and then I'll put in the fossils. And this program will kind of sort those bones based on their shapes, which will tell me something about the fossils. So when you're looking at these shapes, what feature or shape is interesting to you and why? Yeah, so for the knee joint, um, it's a pretty simple joint. It basically just goes in the one direction. But for us, because we are bipedal, we're upright, we want our knee joints to be pretty stable and flat. And so our tibia, which is your shin bone, the top of your tibia is really flat. And you have these kind of longer, more oval-shaped condyles of your femur which is going to be the end of your thigh bone and that is kind of specifically adapted for bipedalism whereas something like a chimpanzee they have really mobile knee joints and so all of their surfaces are really rounded in there and it can move all over the place and so that's something that I would look for in the fossils like are you flatter are you rounder can you move all over or are you more adapted for a stable kind of upright posture that's amazing I wrote a paper about that once. I've read a couple of your because you have some with Carol Ward too that I've, <laughs> yeah. I've <laughs> that I've definitely oh, used. Oh, that's sweet. I didn't oh. think anybody read that paper actually. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, right here. Uh, <laughs> that's it. <fantastic. laughs> tibial condyles. Yep. Yeah, man, I love that stuff. It's so fascinating. I thought it was really interesting yeah. how you called uh, the knee joint a really stable joint, though, because of all of the joints. Oh my. Like in the human body, that is one of the yes. least stable joints. It is the most like dislocated joint. You're right. right. Like it is kind of a, a an interesting. Yeah, no. Um, because we want it to be stable, <laughs> ideally. At the time of recording this right now, my spouse is getting, he broke his knee twice in one year. Ugh. And had to Yuck. get it screwed back together. And he's getting screws out right now and he's in surgery. It went well, but still. <laughs> I'm picturing oh, those x-rays and how unstable that oh. was. Unfortunately common. Maybe you can uh, submit yeah. those x-rays to Kate and she can use it as part of her dissertation. 
Yeah, it basically his ligaments <laughs> ripped his kneecap apart. Oh, yeah. Oh, that sounds mm-hmm. awful. Yeah, no good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, not a good design. The knee is not a good design. It's just kind of. It's not designed know, at all. Yeah. It's not. It is not it's structured like, well. We had to work with what we yeah. had. You know. That's right. <laughs> that's right. No, no. It's. I, and that's what you I get. love the way you characterize that actually because I've often described evolution as uh, sort of the way that automakers proceed. You mm. tinker on last year's model. You don't completely scrap the chassis. Totally. Right? Totally. Um, you have yeah. you have something to work with. That's what you work on. I learned that from Carol Ward. There you go. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, That's for right. sure. So we got all kinds of citations going on just in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, thank you so much for coming on this episode. Again, taking time out of your data collection uh, world. So think that means that you've come to the end of another episode but don't worry we have one more episode before we say goodbye to 2022 and then we got some fun stuff planned for the new year so make sure you follow us on social media if you want to follow me and i don't know why you would i am on twitter for now at james underscore read three and i'm also on mastodon but again i have no idea how that works so not much going on over there Steffi, where can everybody follow you? I'm on Twitter, and my handle is Steffi Deem, and I'm also on a bunch of other random Twitter-like things. Also Steffi Deem. Check them out. Um, And Instagram at Starshipping. Jason, where can the kids follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at OregonJM at your own peril. And Kate, where can where can we keep up with uh, what what you're up to? Sure. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is KKMILLE2. You can follow the podcast at Pod and visit our home on the web at Cyanite.com where you can find links to all of our other social media handles, including our Mastodon uh, account that is equally unuser-friendly. You can find links to our past episodes, the people that we talk to, the things that we talk about, and of course, our merch. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, but until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. It's also not lost on me that, like, basically we've taken a bullshit detector and making a diarrhea detector, right? <laughs>